This is Up All Night with Prince, a two-part audio documentary about Prince's prolific and experimental period of 2001 and 2002. Brought to you by The Current in collaboration with The Prince Estate, Paisley Park, and Sony Music Entertainment. He was provoking you know, the audience, the, his fans, to be open-minded, to listen different music, more open, more improvisation, more jazz in some way, you know? You know, a lot of times when people ask me about the Rainbow Children album, I always equate it to Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. It was really a departure from what Prince normally did. He was just brewing on stage. He was concocting his composition. The composition was free. He was free. The early 2000s were an exhilarating time to be a Prince fan. Prince began the new millennium by announcing that the artist formerly known as Prince was finally free of all major label obligations and would once again be known by his birth name. To celebrate, he made a dramatic shift away from touring behind his hits toward creating music that felt jazz-oriented, exploratory, and free. And thanks to his groundbreaking NPG Music Club, he was able to share his new work with his fans online the moment he created it. This was an era when Prince was flying under the radar of mainstream consciousness. A decision, let's be honest, that couldn't have been too difficult to make, given how cruelly the media had treated him when he changed his name to a symbol the decade before. Instead of catering to a pop culture landscape that failed to understand him, he chose instead to speak directly to his longtime supporters, and it gave him the room he needed to spread out, think deeply about his work, and find a more authentic creative path. If you weren't a member of the NPG Music Club, you might not even know about some of the work Prince released during this period, including his studio albums The Rainbow Children and One Night Alone, and live recordings captured on his 2002 One Night Alone tour. For the uninitiated, this is a great time to dig into these expansive releases, all of which are being reissued by the Prince Estate and Sony on May 29th, 2020. I'm Andrea Swenson. I'm an author, radio host, and music journalist in Minneapolis. And this era of Prince's career has always intrigued me. I have vivid memories of Prince announcing his first celebration events at Paisley Park in this period, which drew fans to the Twin Cities from around the world. And my curiosity about what Prince was up to out there in Chanhassen would jumpstart two decades of writing about and researching his work. You're gonna see me When it came time to call up folks about the One Night Alone period, I knew I had to get a hold of Sam Jennings, the web designer who helped Prince launch his NPG Music Club and one of Prince's only employees in this era.
pretty much the whole time that I was involved, which is about nine years, it was pretty much a skeleton crew. Like there was never, there was never like the heyday of the Warner Brothers days when it was, you know, 30 people and he had three assistants and all that. That stuff was all long gone. So, you know, musically, he hadn't really done much after um, Rave Under the Joy Fantastic. He was just sort of doing shows here and there, releasing songs here and there. Kind of putting things up online a little bit um but yeah nothing that really had a strong uh push behind it when prince made the announcement that he would once again be known as prince he held a press conference and he said quote my main concern right now is to take time to study things of a spiritual nature so i'm gonna go away for a while and do that when he emerged on the other end of that period of reflection in early 2001 he had an outpouring of new material and a new idea for how to get it to his fans, or his fams, as he liked to call them. The MPG Music Club was an online music business that went from 2001 to 2006 that Prince started, and I started it with him. And it, uh, it went through many different phases, but it started out as a sort of uh, direct music service. So Prince could release new music every month and give it to subscribers. And so sometimes it would be three or four songs a month, uh, and there would be like an audio show, which nowadays we call a podcast. And uh, we would deliver all these to people directly to their computer. And it was something that really excited him um, because it was a direct connection to the fans. He, you know, his whole career was all about getting rid of middlemen. And we kind of take it for granted now. But at the time, in, in the early 2000s, I mean, this is like pre iTunes. Um, people were still living in the shadow of Napster. Like the record labels were all very scared of the internet. And this was the first actually artist-owned business that took advantage of the internet as a, as a distribution tool for music. Um, and for him, it was just really liberating and really, he really enjoyed that freedom. London, England. Sometime in the early 1600s. Freedom was a major theme throughout Prince's career, and especially in this era. He was finally free of any obligations to the major label recording industry, free from the glare of the mainstream spotlight, and free to explore and push his music in dramatic new directions. Invigorated by his recent collaborations with the jazz drummer John Blackwell, Prince set out to find new bandmates who could help him develop his sound. One, two, three. I get this call. I get this call, and this is guy on the phone. He says, "Naji, uh, the artist would like to speak to you, but he would—he was going to have to call you back in a few minutes." I said, "Okay." I didn't expect a return phone call, to be honest with you. This is saxophonist and flautist Jerome Rashid, better known as Naji. So, about maybe five, ten minutes later, you know, same guy gets on the phone. He says, "I have the artist on the line." Prince gets on the phone. He says, "Yo, man, what's up?" I said, uh, I don't know, what's up? <laughs> he says, when are you and I getting together? When are you and I going to play? I'm like, I, I would love to play with you. He says, well, what are you doing right now? I said, well, I'm at home in L.A. He says, why don't you come out to Minneapolis? I said, when do you want me to come? He says, why don't you come out right now? 
I said, man, I can't, I can't come out right now. He said, well, when can you come out? And I said, well, maybe by next week or so. He said, all right, I'll have somebody call you. Click, hangs up the phone. And then uh, maybe about an hour later, I get a call from the travel agent, and he flies my brother and I both out first class to Minneapolis, and we get there. And for the first few nights, we've been just hanging out at Paisley Park. He's taking us to clubs, you know, that kind of thing, just hanging with him, getting to know him a little bit. And then finally, he says... I want to record with you. I said, man, I would love to do that. And we're, oh, and we were doing jam sessions every night, you know, from like two in the morning to like four. And then um, he invites me to come record with him at Paisley Park. And so I go in the studio and not really sure what to expect in terms of what he was going to do. And that project ended up being the Rainbow Children. As Najee remembers it, this was no ordinary recording session. Prince seemed to be searching for something very specific, and he worked to draw it out of Najee. He directed me. He was engineering the session. We didn't have an engineer. And he was behind the board, and I was in the booth, you know, in, in the big room that he had, Studio A, I think it was called. And I think he was kind of going for like a 70s kind of vibe, you know, almost like back in the late 60s, 70s, like that Marvin Gaye type thing. So it ended up being a very fascinating record because then he would ask me to improvise things and then he would take parts that he wanted from my improvisation and create other parts. You know, it was just really fascinating to watch the way that he worked. Being alone at Paisley Park with Prince was an intimate experience. It gave Najee a rare glimpse into Prince's daily life. You know, there weren't a lot of people there other than working staff. Prince kept a very controlled environment. And... Um, I recall when we were doing that record date, some children just randomly ran in the studio to come see him. I mean, it was probably like three of them just ran in. And I think they were children of the staff, you know, that he had there. And he stopped the session. He said, Najee, give me a few minutes, man. These kids just came in. I said, okay. And he stopped the session and he just spent time with them. He was very patient with them, you know. You can tell they were used to interrupting, you know. <laughs> and so, you know, that was it. I sat there for probably 20 minutes while he sat there. He talked with them, played with them. And it was just really nice, you know, really nice. In early 2001, Prince brought in several musicians to help him complete the Rainbow Children. In addition to Najee and the drummer John Blackwell, the album features the singing group Millennia, Kip Blackshire, Morris Hayes, the Hornheads, and the legendary funk bassist Larry Graham, who had become a close friend and spiritual mentor to Prince in this era. Within weeks of the album being completed, Prince decided he would premiere it at his June 2001 Celebration, a now annual event that coincided with his birthday and brought fans from around the world to Chanhassen. Here's Sam Jennings again. Well, I know, you know, because we had the music club at the time, he really felt that he had a very active audience that he could tap into. Like he he had his hardcore fans kind of gathered together and organized in a way that he hadn't done before. So 
his idea was let's let's invite the music club to the celebration and let's let them listen to it before anybody else. And so he knew this was his hardcore audience. These were the fans who were going to appreciate the most. He wanted there to be discussions. He wanted there to be talks. You know, he wanted this to spark some kind of uh, dialogue just about God, about religion, about, you know, not specifically Jehovah's Witnesses stuff, but, you know, those sort of kind of concepts and ideas. And I think that was sort of an extension of perhaps the Bible study he was doing. He just kind of wanted to broaden it out and include a bunch of other people. I mean, I remember being at Paisley Park and taking part in a lot of these group discussions. And, you know, every once in a while he would kind of pop in. And he leaned over to me one time and he said, this is what I always wanted Paisley Park to be, a place where people were sharing these heady ideas and debating things and having these really heavy discussions. One of the people who remembers getting into a deep conversation with Prince at Celebration was the rapper Common, who was invited to Paisley Park to perform that year along with Alicia Keys and Erica Badu. Performing at Paisley Park for his birthday was my first experience of really getting to be around Prince. And, you know, that's something that I value as one of my greatest life moments. Walking into Paisley Park, I was like, first of all, thinking about Purple Rain, the movie. But then going to the grounds, like, I was like, man, this is a true empire. Like, this is like he built something that's like just not only amazing, but just felt like empowering when I walked into Paisley Park. Then he had a green screen where you could sh- obviously shoot films, you could shoot videos, you could film commercials. And then you saw all these costumes or outfits that he had wore, and they were like hanging up in the same area where, where we were performing. And you realize just the history of this performer, this artist, and that what you were walking into was truly something that was monumental and legendary, a place that would always be heralded as like one of the greatest sources of music, uh, Paisley Park, you know, and myself, Erica Badu, and Prince was there and, and Larry Graham. And he had this little bucket on the side. There was a cuss bucket. If you curse, you would have to put money in. But I made sure... I didn't do anything that's going to get me kicked out of Paisley Park. You know what I'm saying? I was like, this is Prince. I just want to absorb this moment. So during that time, we we had a great conversation. Everything from God, music, to just fun stuff. Uh, we talked and sat for at least, I remember it being at least about an hour and a half just talking and getting to know each other. And then at one point, I walked out and saw the doves. You know, it was like walking into a place where you read the fairy tale, you read the story, and then you get to see all the things you read about. You know, he had a basketball court in there. And along with the performance, which was the time myself, Erica Badu, and Alicia Keys, before she really even had come out, just to show you how Prince is up on stuff. She hadn't even released her project, but he was somehow aware of her. She just was this young girl with braids, and like Prince really, you know, was giving her love and respect. So, Prince put the stamp on it. You knew it had to be something. She was something. And I remember performing and being like, wow, this is this is amazing. I'm performing for Prince at Paisley Park on his birthday. His mother and his father were there. It just was a special moment, man. I just, for me, one of the greatest moments I've had in my career. That's so special that his parents were there because they both passed away within that next year. Yeah. When I went back to Paisley Park and we walked into the studio, his father was there playing piano. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that was a moment I'll always be like, wow, I just got to hear Prince's father just playing piano, just 
playing for the love of it, just right there. was deeply influenced by his father's piano playing. It's something that he would reflect on years later at his piano and a microphone gala at Paisley Park in January 2016, as well as in the early draft pages of the memoir that he started writing just before he passed away. Around the time that Prince was wrapping up the Rainbow Children at Paisley Park, he also recorded a stunning, mostly solo piano album, One Night Alone. Rather than play the songs in one of Paisley Park's studios, Prince chose to record this collection in Paisley Park's atrium. By the time One Night Alone was released, Prince's father had passed away. In the liner notes, he dedicated it to John L., short for his dad's name, John L. Nelson. Okay, so I am in a really, really special place right now. I am at Paisley Park. I'm in the atrium of Paisley Park, which is this big, open, brightly colored, beautiful room with these four glass pyramids at the ceiling. And there's light pouring in. It's an afternoon. And this building is empty. I don't know that I need to even emphasize this, but I am sitting here in just an extraordinary moment. The world is on pause because of COVID-19. There's shutdowns across the country, throughout the world, and Paisley Park is currently closed to the public. There's only a couple of people here doing a little maintenance work, taking care of the building. And there's something really, really poignant about sitting here in this quiet, beautiful atrium on this quiet day almost entirely alone at Paisley Park because, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the early 2000s and what was going on in Prince's life. And as Sam Jennings, one of his employees, told me, this was a really pared-down time uh, to be a staff member at Paisley Park. There weren't a lot of people here. Prince spent a lot of time alone in the building creating or maybe just hanging out with one or two friends or musicians. And this is what it would have been like. And... It's really something, honestly, to sit here in this moment and think about that. So the atrium, 
It's a beautiful space. If you have ever gone on a tour of Paisley Park or if you came here back in the day, if you came to shows, you might not have seen it because we are in a different wing of the building from the soundstage. But if you came here uh, for any other reason, maybe one of the early celebrations, you would have seen this space. It's a kind of the main lobby of the building. There's a small kitchen immediately off the atrium where Prince could grab a snack or a cup of coffee or tea as he was working in the studios. It's really close to both studios A and B. They're just down the hall. And it's just off the main entryway where uh, people checked in and told them that they were here to see Prince. And then when you look up on the second floor, there's the doves. <laughs> They're in a cage. There's currently three doves living at Paisley Park. And we're going to see if I can go up there and talk to them a little bit and hear some of their secrets. If I did, would you remember to feed the dove and clean the cage and never come? So this is Divinity, and Divinity's having a snack, and giving me a little side eye, which is fine. I don't take it personally. This was a space where, uh, as many people have remarked who worked with Prince, he would like to come here and sit and think. And in the early 2000s, it was such a deeply reflective period for Prince. He was reading so much. He was learning so much. He was reconsidering his entire faith. And, you know, there's that picture of Prince sitting right here in the atrium, being filmed by Kevin Smith and his documentary film crew and talking to his fans about the Rainbow Children and about the lyrics and his thoughts on religion and, and spirituality and philosophy and that's what Prince had always imagined that this place could be. And that's what it became in this era. It was a place where Prince could really connect with people in a real way, in an intimate way, and to welcome them into his world in a way that he hadn't ever done before. And it's just really uh, a privilege to be sitting here. Still be on my feet, yeah. 
That's Prince's cover of Joni Mitchell's A Case of You, a song he would perform live throughout his career. It was recorded in the atrium for One Night Alone, and I actually played it for Prince's dubs to see if I could elicit any coups from them. I swear, when I pressed play and Prince's voice came out in Joni's melodies, Divinity perked up and inched closer to the edge of the cage. In the nearly two decades since The Rainbow Children and One Night Alone were released, their legacies remained strong within the fan community. And scholars of this era continue surfacing new ideas about what Prince was expressing to the world. Since this was such an important time of connection between Prince and his fans, I wanted to call up a couple of the Purple fans who have been passionate advocates for and students of his One Night Alone era. I am Erica Thompson. I am a full-time reporter for the Columbus Dispatch, which is the daily newspaper in Columbus, Ohio. I am also working on a Prince book. I have been for about 10 years now about his spiritual journey. So it's been really cool to interview people who worked with him and then also try to do some analysis of the spiritual themes in his music album by album. Wow, 10 years. Yes, <laughs> quite a while. Uh, but, you know, Prince is so vast and there's so many things to study, even within the bubble of spirituality, that it, it's understandable that it takes some time. Because you're such an expert in this, I'm wondering if you could just describe for me, you know, where was Prince at in his spiritual evolution in the early 2000s? So he was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, but he also spent some time in the Methodist church. So he grew up with those core Christian beliefs. And at the beginning of his career, though, he had this message that I like to call like a sex-based spirituality, meaning that he was able to find liberation through sexual freedom. And you can see that in songs like Uptown or Party Up and then even Sexuality. But then by the time you hit Purple Raid, you start to see some tension between the sexuality and the spirituality. And then by the time you get to the Black album and Love Sexy, he has this spiritual epiphany. And I believe that Love, the Love Sexy album has his strongest exaltation of Jesus Christ up to that point. So you have that really strong Christian message. And then the cool thing about Prince is that he just changes again. <laughs> so throughout <laughs> the 90s, you can see him studying other spiritual systems, especially Eastern spirituality through Hinduism and Buddhism. So you hear him talking about reincarnation and the third eye. And the way I look at it is it's not a rejection of Christianity. It's kind of an expansion because he's just making room for all of these different beliefs. However, by the time that you reach the Rainbow Children era, the early 2000s, He's coming off of some personal tragedy that we all know about, the ending of his marriage, the loss of his son. And so there was something about the structure within the Jehovah's Witness faith that really appealed to him at that point and was able to help him through that difficult time.
there's so much joy in the music. Like Prince really seems to be happy and content for the moment. And you can hear it in songs like Everywhere. Without God, it wasn't there. Now I feel it everywhere. You can hear it in songs like The Work Part One and The Everlasting Now. So I think we can still get something out of the music even if we don't share his beliefs just because of how much energy there is in it. Darling Nisi is a self-described Prince hobbyist and creator of the Prince podcast, Muse to the Pharaoh. Yep, that's her Rainbow Children reference. She's also one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter. Prince said when talking about this time was to surrender your expectations. He's always been really known to do things that were unexpected. And at this point in his career, he seemed to be even more interested in asking questions about why and what is the truth and um, kind of facilitating those conversations. Also, it resonates a lot because he doesn't often talk about race in the direct way he does in this album and both of these albums. Usually it's a metaphor again, or he'll write a song for a different artist and here he's talking about some things pretty directly. And I've always felt like Prince was kind of someone who became a, a part of the vanguard to talk about the Black experience for people who weren't part of our community. And he does that in a very direct way in this album. That's really cool to see. Is there... A specific song to you that really speaks to where Prince was at in this moment and kind of captures this era? I think Family Name does. When you wish to begin this program, place your right hand on the scanner and tightly clinch up your butt cheeks as you might feel a slight electrical shock. When people talk about the Rainbow Children, they often speak of, oh, we're all here together and we're all the same. But he kind of breaks down what that phrase means during that song and talking about, you know, the Kashuk records, again, not a Jehovah Witness doctrine. That's a new age thing. But what does it mean to be African-American? And um, there's black and white, but there's also people of color and there's also tribes. And he kind of expands the idea of being a person of color um, to be important. Um, on the website that he had around this time, he talks about diverse unity and unique diversity diversity, that it's not a bad thing to talk about differences. It's that each of us brings something unique to the table in our experiences to make things more colorful, to make life more colorful. And he talks about that a lot in that song. First of all, the term black and white is a fallacy. It simply is another way of saying this or that. Let's examine the term this or that in its ultimate form, which is this you know, in your opinion, what do these albums tell us about where Prince was at in his creative evolution? So we're coming off of Rave. So this is kind of the first album that we get under his own name. And we know he's studying Jehovah Witness faith. But more than that, he's again asking those questions like, what does this mean? What is the truth? He seemed to be aware that people really wanted him to be who they remembered him as. You know, this is funky, but I just wish he'd play like he used to, old scraggly hair, some of them. Don't let nobody, let nobody bring you down, bring you down. So he, he seemed to say, this is who I am now. I need you guys to catch up with me. You must surrender your expectation. For those of you expected to get your purple rain on, 
you in the wrong house. See, we're not interested in what you know. It's not just Jehovah Witness, I'm Akashic Records, that's a new age thing. (laughs) Or even American history, Uh, a lot of things that we study or present to us, uh, we have a narrative that is not necessarily right. So he's kind of taking us on a journey as he's learning, and it's not just him, you know, at Paisley Park or in a small place in Minnesota thinking about these things. He wants to share that with everyone so that we can all grow with him. Up next on Up All Night with Prince, we're going to dive into all the incredible live recordings from Prince's One Night Alone tour and hear from musicians like Renato Neto, who jammed with Prince for hours every night, often playing until the early hours of the next morning at legendary after shows. You always very provocative, you know, and saying, we're not going to play Purple Rain, you know. But then the show always would play, and it was, it, was, it was like a game, it was fun, you know. Up All Night with Prince is produced by The Current and supported by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. This program was produced in collaboration with the Prince Estate and Sony Music Entertainment and with their support. This story was hosted and produced by me, Andrea Swenson, produced and edited by Anna Wegel, and mixed by Corey Schreppel, with production support from Brett Baldwin, Lynn Elliott, Cecilia Johnson, David Safar, and Derek Stevens. Thanks to Trevor Guy, Michael Howe, and Zach Hockapole. To learn about The Current, visit thecurrent.org. If you haven't subscribed yet, search for Up All Night with Prince on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, to learn more about Prince, visit Prince.com. Let me see him. Come on and touch the place in me. Calling out your name. <laughs>